Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 360, The Long Game. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Crystal, Alex, and Melanie for signing up already. In 1040, while England was dealing with the chaos of Hartha Knut's reign and the threat of yet another succession crisis, Scotland was dealing with its own set of problems. The Northern Kingdom had just lost its king, and that wasn't anything new for Scotland. Their kings rarely lasted long. But it got trickier because the king's killer, Macbeth, had basically finished off King Duncan, turned around, and said, I'm the new king. And that was a bold move, especially considering that move, the murder-your-way-up-to-the-throne move, was typically reserved for the heir to the throne. And we have every reason to believe that Macbeth wasn't the heir to the throne. I mean, sure, he claimed to be the grandson of King Malcolm II, but when you got down to it, his standing for the Scottish throne was dodgy, and it was plain to everyone that he hadn't gone through the normal channels. And actually there were a number of nobles who had just as good of a claim as he did, and in some cases, better claims. So, probably as King Duncan was bleeding out on the ground, Macbeth was in a race against time. If this was going to stick, he needed to be consecrated as king, now, before any of the other claimants beat him to it. Because when you got down to it, the early medieval Scottish throne basically followed the same rules that kids use for who gets to ride up front. So Macbeth raced to Schoon in hopes that he could shout shotgun before anyone else. And his biggest concern was likely King Duncan's eldest son, Malcolm Canmore, which translates to Malcolm Bighead. And Bighead wasn't just the eldest son of the previous king. He was also already governing Cumbria, and in 11th century Scottish politics, that was a post for the heir apparent. So if Macbeth was going to pull this off, he had to get to Schoon before Bighead. And apparently, he was really quick on the draw because he made it, and Macbeth was declared king of the Scots. And that meant Bighead and his younger brother Donald were now in deep trouble. Now, we know that Duncan's sons were at least teenagers by 1040, but because Big Head was already in charge of Cumbria at the time of his father's murder, it's likely that they were a good deal older. And as such, Macbeth would have known that they posed him a significant amount of danger, not just as simple political rivals for the throne, but also as direct threats upon his life. Throughout his life, Macbeth had seen the sons of murder victims return and exact their revenge upon the killers. I mean, to be honest, killing your father's murderer was a beloved Scottish pastime at this point. And actually, it looks like Macbeth partook in that particular pastime when he was younger. So, according to John of Forden, Macbeth was taking no chances with Duncan's sons. John tells us that, quote, Macbeth hunted down with all his might Duncan's sons, Malcolm Canmore, who should have succeeded Duncan, and his brother, Donald, striving to kill them. But they resisted as best they could and remained in the kingdom for almost two years hoping for victory, while few of the people in the kingdom gave assistance openly to either Macbeth or to them, end quote. So for two years after Macbeth was declared king, 
Malcolm Bighead and his brother were on the run. And Macbeth was, well, headhunting. But it seems that while few people were giving open support, Bighead and his brother still had plenty of friends in Scotland. Because no matter what Macbeth did, he just couldn't get his hands on them. And they were functionally heading up a political insurgency. A big one. And anyone who was in a place to help Macbeth and bring this political rift to an end was, for some reason, staying out of it. So the conflict dragged on. And this suggests that Macbeth's hold on the Scottish throne was tenuous. There must have been power players in Scotland who favored the line of Duncan. Maybe they didn't favor it enough to actually raise an open flag of rebellion, but they were still on the side of Duncan's line enough to hide the boys and help them continue their struggle. And that was bad news for Macbeth. Because the longer that this went on, the weaker he looked. So while England was up to its neck in Hartha Canute's new autocracy, Macbeth was up in the north trying to eliminate his top political rivals. And through it all, Malcolm and his brother were keeping their heads down. And by simply managing to survive, they were seriously damaging Macbeth's authority. And something to keep in mind here is that while Big Head and Duncan were the main targets of Macbeth's ire, and logistically his most serious threats, there were other members on the line of Duncan that were out there. Their grandfather, Abbot Crennan of Dunkeld, who also may have been the Moor Mayor of Athol, was still alive. He was likely not too pleased with how his son had been killed and how his grandsons were now being hunted. And we know that he was a powerful figure in his own right. So I wonder how he was using that power. Unfortunately, there's no remaining record of what he was doing. But it might have been their grandfather that was behind the boys' two-year struggle. And if he wasn't actively protecting the boys, then what was he doing? Was he conserving his power? Was he offering neutrality in exchange for some kind of favor for Macbeth? We don't know. But mighty Crinan had to have been a factor here one way or another. And Crinan's presence is important because it shows that Macbeth wasn't purging the whole dynasty. Assuming that Forden is accurate, Macbeth kept his hunt limited to just the nobles who were in line for the throne, rather than letting the feud spill out into a family-wide thing. So this doesn't seem to have been personal, or even a blood feud. It was just business. Macbeth wanted to rule, and killing Big Head and Donald would help ensure that he ruled for a long time. Which, all told, is pretty classically Scottish for this era. But the limit to the bloodlust could also be telling us something about the power of Crinan. Macbeth would have known all too well how powerful the Mormares were, and it's possible that he didn't have the power to challenge Crinan directly. And so, like the longer-lived Scottish kings, Macbeth didn't move against the Mormares directly. John of Forden also tells us that there were Scottish lords who were plotting with Malcolm Bighead. And these wealthy noblemen were trying to convince the heir to take the throne of Scotland from Macbeth. It's possible that Crinan was one of those lords. But even with Grandpa on your side, two years is a long time to stay on the throne. And apparently, things weren't going their way. The brothers likely realized that if they stayed in Scotland, their luck would run out sooner or later. And probably sooner. So according to John of Forden, Malcolm and Donald, quote, did not dare to continue the struggle any longer. Donald went to the Western Isles and Malcolm to Cumbria, since it was abundantly clear that death rather than life awaited them if they remained, end quote. 
But if we have learned anything about the Scottish throne, it's that an heir in exile is still an heir, and as a consequence, a threat. What Big Head was doing, and where he was, must have been weighing heavily on Macbeth's mind. And it's around this point in time that the Orkneyinga saga also mentions someone named Carl Hundison. Now, unfortunately, because it's a saga, the details are sketchy and we're not told who Carl Hundison specifically was. And I know what you're thinking right now. Just find some guy named Carl who had a dad named Hunda. Problem solved. The trouble, though, was that this name wasn't his real name. Instead, it's just the moniker that the saga was using for a Scottish king. And as such, there are a number of contenders for which king of the Scots is being referred to when the sagas talk about Carl Hundison. But the prevailing academic theory is that Carl Hundison was, in fact, Macbeth. And if this is true, that means we have a few details regarding what Macbeth was up to, at least what he was up to regarding Orkney. And it all begins with Kate Ness. As you might remember, Thorfinn had been placed in charge of Caithness by his grandfather, King Malcolm II. But by this point, Thorfinn was also the Jarl of Orkney. And considering his position and the power that he wielded, Jarl Thorfinn decided that he wasn't going to pay tribute for Caithness any longer. Instead, he was breaking that territory away from Scottish control. And Carl Hundison didn't appreciate that one bit. So after becoming King of the Scots... Carl appointed his nephew as the new Jarl of Caithness, and then again demanded that Thorfinn pay his tribute for Caithness. But Thorfinn was still having none of it. So Carl's nephew, who's referred to as Mudden, which probably wasn't his real name, but actually was a misunderstanding of the title Mormare, raised an army and marched on Caithness. However, it was soon clear that he'd overplayed his hand and he retreated once he saw he was going to face off with Thorfinn's much larger army. But now Thorfinn was pretty pissed. He had to raise a huge army just to push this king's nephew back. And they were all dressed up, so he took that force, and he moved forward, subduing Ross and Sutherland, and then ravaging the countryside. Carl, hoping to end the assault and take advantage of Thorfinn's absence, raised a fleet of 11 warships and sailed around to strike Deerness and Orkney. Unfortunately, the fleet was defeated, and even Carl's flagship was sunk in the battle. But thankfully, the king knew how to swim, and so he survived the attack and retreated back to Scotland. And there, he raised the kingdom's full army. We're told that he drew warriors from across the full breadth of Scotland, as far as Kintyre. He even called Irish soldiers into his service. But Jarl Thorfinn wasn't a fool, and he knew that Carl would be back. So he also called upon his warriors and drew them from Caithness, Sutherland, and Ross and had them join his army and then they marched south. Meanwhile, Thorkell, who was Thorfinn's foster father, advanced with his own forces and marched upon Carl's nephew who was located at Thurso. And there they killed the would-be Jarl of Caithness. Thorkell then met up with his foster son Thorfinn and together they advanced upon Carl and the Scottish-Irish army. And at Torfness, which is generally believed to be Tarbatness, the armies collided. Carl had numbers on his side, but we're told that the Scots were defeated in the exchange, and Carl was forced to flee. The saga then claims that Thorfinn conquered Scotland as far as Fife, and some records also add that Carl was killed. 
And here it's important to remember that we're talking about sagas. And in sagas, the Scandinavians never lose. Magic is real. Victories are overwhelming. And it's pretty much just the last 20 minutes of Avengers Endgame all the time. So we can't take this story to be a neutral accounting of what happened. For example, the claim of conquering Scotland as far south as Fife is definitely an exaggeration. The death of Carl, considering how confused the accounts are, is also likely not accurate. Furthermore, the battles themselves probably weren't as spectacularly victorious for Thorfinn as the saga might have you believe. But in general, the Orkneyinga gives us some evidence that King Macbeth, soon after taking the throne, was embroiled in a bitter war with Jarl Thorfinn, who was possibly his own cousin. And a war with Orkney is exactly what you'd expect from a more mayor of Murray, especially one who'd just been elevated to king. Murray and Orkney were bitter rivals and in constant conflict. And it's entirely possible that these battles did actually go badly for the Scots, and that could account for why the Scottish sources just seem to not mention them. And I think what we can safely assume here is that, out of everything, King Macbeth must have been rather busy during the rise and fall of King Hartha Canute. And then Hartha Canute died, and Edward Atheling became King Edward of England. And for Macbeth, things went from bad to worse. Do you remember Earl Seward of Northumbria? He was the Earl of York who had some serious ambitions, and at some point married Alflad, the granddaughter of Earl Uhtred the Bold of Bamborough. And that marriage must have been at least a little tense, because in 1041, Seward murdered Alflad's uncle, Earl Adolf of Bamborough. And that must have made for some really weird dinner conversations. But then again, through this murder, suddenly Alflad wasn't just the Lady of York, she was now the Lady of all of Northumbria, thanks to her husband's bloody promotion. Well, it turned out that Seward wasn't just going to stop at Northumbrian politics. His ambitions also focused outside of those borders. And in particular, he had an eye on his neighbors to the north, Scotland. According to John of Forden, Earl Seward didn't much like King Macbeth. And all things told, Seward thought he would fare much better if the throne returned to the line of Duncan. In particular, he wanted our old friend Malcolm Bighead on the throne. But for that to happen, Bighead was going to need some powerful friends. I mean, Macbeth was likely bloodied by his fighting with Orkney, but he was still the king of the Scots. And he was also from the militarily potent region of Murray. So Bighead needed backup. And Seward had just the guy in mind. King Edward of England. So negotiations began and Seward brokered a meeting with a king. And my guess is that it probably wouldn't have been that hard to convince King Edward. This new king had a lot of experience with what it was like to live in exile. Furthermore, Edward was also new to England, new to rule, and was surrounded by nobles who were incredibly powerful, deeply entrenched, and very familiar with the kingdom and how it worked. So I suspect that Edward would have been incredibly reliant on his council, especially during those first few years which meant that high-ranked earls, like Seward of Northumbria, but also Leofric of Mercia and Godwin of Wessex, probably had a huge amount of influence over the new king. And so did, I'm sure, the king's mother, Queen Emma. And unlike Harthacanute, King Edward appears to have listened to his council, which could be a good thing, provided, of course, he wasn't too much like his father, King Athelred, and he knew the difference between a good counselor and a bad one. 
But John of Forden tells us that on the advice of Earl Seward, Big Head made the journey from Ireland to England, and he did so shortly after Edward's coronation. And once he arrived, King Edward, quote, gladly welcomed him to his allegiance and special service, end quote, because Edward, quote, knew he had been unjustly deprived of the dignity of king, end quote, which meant that rather than being an exile living in Ireland, Big Head was now an ally of the King of England and a member of court. And that was great news, both for Big Head and Earl Seward, since Seward could very well find himself with a friend across his northern border, provided this all worked out. And needless to say, this was terrible news for Macbeth. Meanwhile, in Scandinavia, King Magnus of Norway and Denmark was finding himself up to his eyeballs with trouble. Do you remember Swain Estrithson? He was the English-born cousin of King Harthacnut. And Swain was such a dynastic threat that Harthacnut gifted him fancy titles and lands to try and keep him on his side. And then when Harthacnut died and Magnus became king of Denmark, Magnus also gave him gifts. He even made him the Jarl of Jutland. And that was a bit surprising, considering that Swain had actually fought against Magnus during the Norse-Danish succession war. So the fact that he did that should, again, give you an idea of how much a threat Swain was, because kings kept giving him fabulous cash and prizes to keep him happy. But the funny thing about royal bribes is that if you're the king, you don't have to wait for the crown to give you cash and prizes. You can just give them to yourself. And Swain was already fairly popular in Denmark. And Snorri tells us that soon after becoming the Jarl of Jutland, Swain, quote, went much about the country and made friends among the powerful chiefs. And indeed, he was beloved by all the people of the land, end quote. And meanwhile, this new King Magnus was foreign. He ruled in a faraway land and he wasn't even from the dynasty of Forkbeard. It didn't take too much work for the Danes to realize that a change was needed, and Swain was just the man for the job. Now, he just needed an opportunity, and he very well may have been gearing up for war in the aftermath of Harthacnut's death. And then the Wends invaded. Thousands upon thousands of Slavic pagan warriors marched towards Denmark and Norway, which is not great news. King Magnus, in response, summoned his subjects and allies to counter the threat. And even Duke Otto of Brunswick, his brother-in-law, answered the call. So before long, Magnus was at the head of a great army, and they advanced south to Hedeby. The plan was to stop the Wendish army there at the borderlands, and thus prevent them from laying waste to Denmark. But while the king was encamped next to the river, his scouts returned and informed him that the Wendish army was big. Like, way bigger than they anticipated. In fact, it was so big that the scouts couldn't even give an estimate as to how many there were. But King Magnus wasn't about to retreat. He would stand and fight, and his army would do their duty to their king. And this declaration did not go over well. The assembled commanders and chiefs all pleaded to the king to stand down and avoid open battle with such an enormous force. Well, all of them did except for Duke Otto. Duke Otto didn't get dressed up for nothing. He wanted to fight, and so he stood with King Magnus in the debate. And on the strength of that single supporter, the king declared that the Scandinavian army would battle the Wends. He commanded the war horns to sound, and the army assembled into a full battle array. 
Then he told them to lay down and sleep for the night under their shields. Which probably sounds a little stupid, but honestly, it wasn't a bad idea. It would obviously make for an uncomfortable night's sleep, but this also made the encampment safer. Because it takes a while to get the army fully armed and armored. And if the Wends made a sneak attack in the night, Magnus's army would fare a lot better if they weren't trying to battle while they're out there in their skivvies. And eventually, after a long and probably largely sleepless night, morning came. And King Magnus stood before his assembled warriors and told them that he'd been granted a vision. Overnight, his father, the saintly King Olaf, appeared to him and promised that he would be there with them in this battle. Then, far in the distance, some church bells began to ring. And the soldiers took this as a sign that the vision was true. King Olaf was with them. The army was heartened. And that was good, because across the river, the massive Wendish army began to march forward. King Magnus stood before his army clad in ringmail and wielding his father's battle axe, named Hel, and he ordered the war horns to sound. As the enemy approached, we're told that Magnus charged ahead of the line and dove into the fight. Here's a scaldic account of what happened next. Quote, his armor on the ground he flung, his broad axe round his head he swung, and Norway's king strode on in might, through ringing swords to the wild fight, his broad axe hell in both hands wielding, shields, helms, and skulls before it yielding. He seemed with fate the world to share, and life or death to deal out there. End quote. So Magnus didn't just charge at the winds. He stripped off his armor to do it, which sounds badass and also like a really terrible idea. Or at least like the Skald was playing this up. But this battle was taking place across a river. So it's quite possible that Magnus dropped his armor so he'd be able to fight in the shallows. This would allow him to take advantage of the vulnerability of people trying to cross a river while also not drowning if he accidentally waded too deep. And Snorri tells us that the rest of the army rushed to defend their king, fighting fiercely on the shore of the river. And after a little bit, the Wends, quote, fell as thick as tangles heaped up by the waves on the strand, end quote. The invading army broke, and Magnus and his men chased after them, and the Wends, quote, were hewed down like cattle at a slaughter, end quote. Afterwards, he and his army marched home. The threat was vanquished, and King Magnus had proven his worth and his skill. Snorri tells us that, quote, never was so great a slaughter of men in the northern lands since the time of Christianity, end quote. And as for the miraculous appearance of King Olaf, well, stories were beginning to be told about how, quote, no man could venture to fight against King Magnus Olafsson, for his father, St. Olaf, stood so near to him that his enemies, on that account, never could do him harm, end quote. It was a bold claim, and one that the Danes apparently hadn't heard. Because shortly after the defeat of the Wends, in the winter of 1043, the nobles of Denmark gathered, and they proclaimed Swain Estrithson as the new king of Denmark. And they prepared for war against King Magnus of Norway. They wanted their kingdom back. And that conflict must have pricked the ears of the English court. You see, at this point, King Edward had only been on the throne for about a year. But in the eyes of one particular member of court, that was one year too many. The fact is that nothing in the record suggests that Queen Emma was all that fond of her eldest son. And there are actually indications that once Edward was her only remaining heir, 
She was hoping that the throne would instead go to King Magnus of Norway rather than to her son. And you know, despite his relative youth, King Magnus was an accomplished war leader, and he had just proven that rather decisively against the Wends. He also stood the best chance of reunifying the fledgling empire that had been formed by Emma's husband, King Canute. So if you give her the benefit of the doubt for a moment, there might have been some logic there. But on the other hand, at best, what she was asking for here was a conquest of England. I mean, England already had a king, so this wasn't a simple matter of voting for who would be the next ruler. If Magnus wanted to rule England, he would need to deprive Edward, Emma's own son, of his throne. And that would mean war on English soil, which wasn't exactly something that would benefit England. Furthermore, if Emma was aiming to displace her son with a Scandinavian ruler, it would actually make a lot more sense if it was Swain Estrithson. After all, Swain was Emma's nephew. He was also English-born, and he had ties all throughout the kingdom. Whereas King Magnus was just some guy who won a tontine, and it's likely that Emma never even met him. So unless she was taking note of the fact that Magnus was unmarried, and she wanted to use this as an opportunity to broker a marriage to yet another conquering ruler, I genuinely don't know what she hoped to gain from seeking out Magnus. I mean, it's not like she was poor. She had plenty of lands and even a position in court, not to mention a great deal of respect since she was the dowager queen and the king's mother. So what more could she be hoping to gain? I mean, if it was marriage, that was going to be a bit of a heavy lift because Magnus was actually younger than her son. So short of just being one last chance to spite Edward, I'm genuinely not sure what she thought she'd get out of this. But it appears that Emma was dead set on burning it all to the ground. And Magnus did pose a very real threat to Edward. In fact, he even sent Edward a letter where he threatened to invade England and basically let God sort it out. Which, yikes. So you have to imagine that Edward was breathing a huge sigh of relief when the Wends attacked. And then again, when Denmark raised a flag of rebellion under new King Swain. Honestly, Edward narrowly dodged a bullet there. But there still was the problem of his mother. You see, it wasn't just that she was secretly hoping that Magnus would take England. According to one report, she was actively trying to make it happen, and was even promising to use her English lands to support King Magnus should he invade. Now, to be clear, we have no hard proof of this conspiracy. We just have surviving accusations and rumors. And so we can't say for certain that Emma was definitely in cahoots with King Magnus. But the accusations were out there. And for King Edward, this was the last f***ing straw. On November 16th of 1043, Edward rode to Winchester, where his mother was living. And by his side was Earl Leofric of Mercia, Earl Seward of Northumbria, and the mighty Earl Godwin of Wessex. Emma was brought before the king. And Edward accused his mother of treason. And knowing that his court would condemn her, he seized all her properties and expelled her from the government. Now, the scribes of the Chronicle, for their part, don't mention the accusation of conspiracy. They played it a bit more coyly and said that this all happened because Emma, quote, had formerly been very hard to the king, her son, in that she did less for him than he wished, both before he became king and afterwards as well, end quote. 
And that kind of makes it sound like she was just a bad mom, which, to be honest, she pretty clearly was. But if you know the rest of the context provided by the other documents, it's clear that, quote, did less for him than he wished both before becoming king and afterwards, end quote, was doing some pretty heavy lifting in that entry. But now, at last, it had been dealt with. Emma's power was broken. We're told that Edward did feel guilty about this, though. And I wonder if that's why he showed her a degree of clemency by refusing to impose the more typical punishments of exile, outlawry, or death. But while Edward was struggling with his guilt, you have to imagine that Earl Godwin was doing his best not to smile. Emma had been quite the political rival for Earl Godwin. And Godwin had plans. You see, the king was unmarried, so Edward was going to need a bride. And Godwin had just the girl in mind. His daughter, Edith. And by now, it was clear that King Edward could be influenced. He was unfamiliar with England and unaccustomed to rule. And besides, if Seward could get Edward to support the Scottish princes, why couldn't he convince Edward to marry Edith? I'm guessing that Godwin correctly surmised that he just needed the time and space to arrange it free of any interference. And now, Emma was out of the picture. And as for King Magnus, all of this deepened the rift between Edward and the King of Norway, which actually would have been great news for King Swain of Denmark, who was gearing up for war with Norway. And here's the funny thing about King Swain. Two of his brothers were living in Godwin's territory of Wessex because King Swain was Godwin's nephew. So as England postured against the enemy of Godwin's nephew, and as Godwin's main political rival was impoverished and booted out of Winchester, and as unimpeded discussions began regarding a royal marriage with Godwin's daughter, well, I bet once he was in his private chambers, Godwin finally let himself crack a little smile. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sign up for membership, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And they stay there.